Lord God, we pray that as we come to think further about you, about the kind of God you are, the kind of purposes that you have for us, for this life and for eternity, we pray that you will open our hearts, that you will lift our eyes and help us to see more of you and to be inspired by you, to serve you and to live for you this week and always. Amen. What is the Christian message? What is the gospel? Well, you could answer, but I'll put you out of your misery. Um, We believe, don't we? We believe there is a God. We believe there is a God, and what is that God like? We believe there is a God who is loving and fair and pure, who is holy who is bigger and brighter and greater than we can know or imagine, who is beyond our ability to grasp, who is, well, holy is the best word we have. And yet a God who reveals himself to us, who desires that we might know him, not just know about him, but know him personally live in close relationship with him, know him as our father and our friend forever. We also, though, recognize that our natural inclination is to turn from him, to turn inwards, to worship ourselves, or to find other gods which are no gods and which will always disappoint us, other gods to worship. We recognize our inclination to sin, not to look up to God and to base our life on him, but on ourselves and on other stuff. But this holy God, we believe, is also a saving God, a God who comes to us in his son, Jesus Christ, whose name means saviour and dies for us, the just for the unjust, to defeat sin by taking it upon himself, to reconcile us and renew us. And we believe God sends his Holy Spirit on his children to show us more of him, to help us to become more like him, to remind us that we are his children and to enable us to live the kind of lives a child of God should live. So we believe in a God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, as our church text for the year says, not because of anything we have done, but because of who he is like, because of his own purpose and grace. And when we consider, as we are doing at the moment, what holiness is, we always start by looking up at God to capture, or rather to be captured by, a vision of God who is utterly holy. Of course, that's not easy because God is beyond our ability to grasp. But he is on our side. We have in the Bible God-breathed words, stories and instructions and pictures of what holiness is, of what God is like and how he wants to relate to us. Its words might seem strange to us and in a sense it's good that they do because they speak of a God who is utterly beyond us, 
It's both a blessing and a risk when we become familiar with the Bible. The blessing is that we know God better. The risk is we lose a sense of God's strangeness. God is with us. God is for us. But God is not like us. And the climax of the Bible's revelation of God is its accounts of Jesus. He came in humility. His holiness seemingly veiled, but at times, even during his earthly life, the glorious, holy aspects of his nature shine forth. Peter is forced to exclaim soon after he meets Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Thomas declares in both joy and horror, my Lord and my God. And John tells us in his gospel that the moment of Jesus' supreme glory occurred as he hung on a cross, lifted up to be mocked by people, but vindicated by God. One modern writer who's really helped me to see and feel what God is like is C.S. Lewis, as you might know. Aslan, the Jesus character in the Chronicles of Narnia, is both gentle and terrifying. Is he quite safe? asks Lucy. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. When the children first hear the name Aslan, even before they've met him, Lewis tells us that each of them feels something intense. Edmund, the one who's already turned his face away from what's good, Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays. How do you feel when you hear the name Jesus? Do you feel those intensities of feelings? Does it transport you to another place? The the great thing about Lewis's writings, I find, is they touch your heart and they somehow help to bridge the gap between my unholy, finite, feeble self and the holy, eternal, glorious God. They evoke a sense of longing for a world which is not this world, which I know will be better and brighter and more solid, and where I know I will meet God one day. And it will be so glorious, so wonderful, so holy, I will then be lost in wonder, love and praise. But they also draw me to worship now to turn my heart to God, to consider the one who is so beautiful, so glorious, so loving, so holy. Friends, the holiness of God, the bright, strong, faithful, gracious reality of who God is, is such a beautiful thing. To be in his presence, in the presence of holiness, this, if we could but see it, is the fulfillment of all our longings. As Lewis says, if we find ourselves with a a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. 
Friends, we were made for holiness. We were made to worship God and enjoy him forever. God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. The holiness of God is the best possible news for hungry, weary, jaded humans like us. And Lewis writes, We are such half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it meant, is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside. We are far too easily pleased. Honestly, I'd like to go on about this. One of my convictions is that as Christians, we don't talk enough about God, what he's like, how much he's done for us. Our lives, even our prayers, can so often give the game away about what we really care about. We talk about ourselves and not about God. Yet to speak of holiness, as we are trying to learn to do this term, is to speak first and foremost, about God. But I do need to move on and talk about us because God is calling us to live lives that are holy. Not just to prepare for one day when we meet him, when we will be made holy, although we do that, but in the here and now. This is what Ryle focuses on in chapter 3 of his book. We're on week 3 of our series and let me say a few things about that. I know some of you are finding Ryle a challenge. Some of you might not be reading him, and that's fine. But if you are, and I've encouraged folk to read him, uh, you might be finding him a challenge at all sorts of levels. And um, I whisper this quietly. I'm quite glad about that. Because nothing worthwhile is ever easy. If we want to grow up tall, we need to dig down deep. And spade work is hard work. Ryle was a Victorian clergyman, writing at a time when almost everybody in this country would have said they were a Christian. But Ryle knew that most of them weren't. And he's desperate to jolt people out of their complacency, to stop them sleepwalking away from God. We sense his passion in chapter 3, if you've read it this week. Our situation is different but there are still people even in church who are what are sometimes called nowadays functional atheists. They don't call themselves atheists. Atheism is going out of fashion, and rightly so. It doesn't work and it's not true. But so, so people these days tend not to call themselves atheists, but they function as atheists. They are functional atheists. They behave as if there were no God, and certainly not a holy God. 2,000 years ago, the letter of James in the Bible talked about this, although James uses different terminology. He talks about dead faith. Faith which is not accompanied by action is dead. It is not a living, saving faith, but a dead, fraudulent faith. Let me read you James chapter 2, 14 to 18. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, 
it, if, it, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And he goes on to talk about why faith without any kind of action or evidence is no faith at all, James chapter 2. And if you read Ryle carefully, you will see that he is trying to emphasize both points in our church text. I've mentioned this before. There, is, there are two points that our text is telling us about what God uh, has for us. God has saved us and God has called us to a holy life. Two things which are linked, interrelated to each other and I think Ryle helps to bring that out. We are saved by God's grace, not by what we have done and yet we are saved for a holy life. If we call ourselves Christians but feel able to shrug our shoulders at our own personal sin, if we feel unconcerned about our selfishness, if we are functional atheists, then I think Ryle is right to warn us that we are not saved because there is no evidence of the grace of God in our lives. There is no evidence of the work of the spirit of holiness. It has become what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. God save me and then I'll carry on doing what on earth I like. But Ryle is also right, and don't miss here what he says. Ryle is also right because he assures us that in this life we will never be rid of the presence of sin. It will always be there. In the most holy of people, it will always be there, disappointing us and frustrating us. But the point is that it will be disappointing and frustrating us. We will not just shrug our shoulders at it. We will not just laugh it off. We will be constantly irritated and frustrated and annoyed by, by it. When was the last time you wept at your own sinfulness, at your failings to live out God's grace? When was the last time you got down on your knees and echoed Paul's words in your prayers, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I've done that. Not as often as I should, but sometimes I'm overwhelmed when I look inside my heart and I see the selfishness and self-centeredness and self-orientation there. To get down on your knees and to plead to God to do something about it, then we are closer to God than when we breeze along thinking that it doesn't really matter. I don't know if you've ever read accounts of the extraordinary spiritual revivals in past times in places like Wales or, North, or, or East Africa and other parts of the world, and indeed in this country. It's dangerous to generalize about such events. It's particularly dangerous to think that if we follow some kind of formula, then it's all going to happen again. But something that which was common in these situations was for people to be overcome by a sense of God's holiness and their sinfulness. Hardened men would be seen roaming the streets of South Wales, crying their eyes out, 
calling out to God in repentance. That's what revival means. Revival doesn't mean a fuzzy feeling in our hearts when we're singing a song we really like that makes us feel good about ourselves. I've nothing wrong with that. That is a foretaste of heaven. But that's not how revival begins. Revival begins when we have a deep and overwhelming sense of our need of God, how we can't do this ourselves, how we're desperate for God's grace in our own lives. These revivals are following the pattern we read on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. We read that after Peter spoke, the people were cut to the heart. Literally, they were pierced or pricked in the heart. It's not a pleasant sensation they were having. And asked what they needed to do, to which Peter replied, Repent, turn round, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. I don't often preach in these terms, and I feel maybe that I've failed in that. My job is to preach the whole counsel of God. And if you read your New Testament, you will find this theme of our need of repentance and to be seeking after holiness is there throughout. Paul's letters, he tends to start with the grace and then move on to to what it means to live a holy life. In the Gospels, Jesus talks. I mean, I've been reading Matthew's Gospel in my quiet times. Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is incredibly direct about what following him means in practical terms. But then in the Gospels, we go on. And Jesus, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die for us. There's always this balance in God's word of God's grace and mercy, but also of his desire for us to live holy lives which honour him. So what might this look like practically in our lives? Firstly, always we turn our eyes upwards to God and we ask him for a vision of him and his holiness. We ask him to show us what he's truly like because only when we see what God and what he's like will we be able to see ourselves and what we're truly like. We turn our eyes upwards. But then, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we examine ourselves. So to get specific, here are seven areas where I invite you to consider whether your life shows forth holiness or functional atheism. Number one, your internet browsing history or social media profile. Does it show forth holiness or functional atheism? Number two, our use of time and energy. Where are our priorities? What do we always make sure we have time for? What do we give our energy to? Are we showing forth holiness or functional atheism? Number three, our temper. How we react when things don't go well. Our families probably see it. Are they show, is it showing forth holiness or functional atheism? Number four, our desire for more of God, our attention to him, and our prioritizing of time spent with him. Does it show forth holiness or functional atheism? Number five, our attitudes to our bodies, to fitness, to our body shape, to what we look like, to what we eat and drink. Is it showing forth holiness or functional atheism? 
Number six, our expenditure. And number seven, how we talk about Jesus. Yes, I'm challenging this morning. I feel I have to be. But don't forget, God has saved us and called us to a holy knife, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. God wants a relationship with every single person in this room for eternity. He loved every single person in the room that he went to the cross to die for us. He is longing to spend eternity with us. But that eternity is going to be a holy eternity. And it's one which he wants us to start preparing for now. He doesn't want us to miss out by living a life that is focused on the wrong stuff and ending up being disappointed by all the false gods we've gone after. So I want to end where I began by focusing on God and not on us. I want to remind you that holiness and that the at times painful process of becoming holy is something we will one day look back on with a renewed perspective. When one day we stand in God's presence without fault and with great joy, we will look back on our feeble strivings and frequent stumblings and we will see how the Holy Spirit was using them to transform us, to make us holy, to fit us for heaven, to refine our yearnings and to make us more like Jesus. We will see how this life in which we have come to know Jesus as our saviour and which we are so falteringly seeking to follow him as Lord, how this life is only, to echo the words of Lewis, the cover and title page of the real story. One day soon, we will each begin chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. May God make us ready and eager to go further up and further into our place in that story. And in the meantime, may we keep reminding ourselves and one another that God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. If you are a visitor here this morning, or if you've someone who has not yet experienced the glories of being saved by Jesus, I'm sorry this d- that today has been rather a, a, a hard morning. I've been quite straight down the line about what the Bible says. But if you've not yet encountered God in Christ, then the words I invite you to listen to this morning is that God wants to save you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to experience his grace. Grace means getting what we don't deserve from God. His, being made his children when we, deserve to be made, when we deserve to be his enemies. That is what God's grace is. And he draws us into this relationship which is to last for eternity. It is to be a holy relationship and that's been the challenge of this morning. But I, I implore you not to let that put you off beginning that journey. 
Because holiness, although it seems austere and stark when we look at it from a worldly perspective, as we move along the path, we begin to see the beauty and the life and the hope and the joy because it is a journey into relationship with God himself. You find a holy person. You look around the room and think, who are the holy people here? They're the happy people. They're the people who, when stuff hits them in life, they can go through it, not, not you know, with a fixed smile on their face, but go through it with a hope that God is with them. Holiness is not a miserable thing. Holiness is such a joyous thing because it means living a life that is orientated to God and to eternity. And that is what he has created us for. Let me pray. Oh, dear God, it's right that when we think about you, we are humbled and we're made aware of the, the great distance there is between us and you, your holiness and our unworthiness. And yet we thank you that in Christ you came to bridge that gulf. You died for us, that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you that you have saved us when we place our faith in you, when we say to you, I can't do this, I need you. At that moment we are saved. But we are saved for a life of holiness, a life of getting closer and closer to you. And we pray for your forgiveness for those aspects of our lives which are not holy, which displease you, which drag us away from sweet fellowship with you. We ask your forgiveness and we ask your help that we might come closer to you, that we might know you more deeply and follow you more nearly and love you more completely. And we ask these things in the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our final hymn, Fiona has already trailed it, a beautiful old hymn. It takes a little bit of concentration. In fact, we might just um, f uh, run through the words before we sing them then, if that's all right. There's five verses. Um, oh, worship the Lord. It's an invitation. We sing, these, we sing this song to each other. We're encouraging each other. You and you, as we look around the room, worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Bow down before him, his glory proclaim. And then we liken gold and incense to actually our lifestyles, obedience and lowliness. Kneel and adore him, the Lord in his name. Thanks, Ben. Next verse. Low at his feet. And this is the one we used in our prayer earlier. Low at his feet, lay thy burden of carefulness. We lay our cares before him, and he bears them on our heart for us, and he comforts and answers us and guides us. Words of great assurance. Thank you. Next verse. Fear not to enter his courts. This is the joy of the gospel. God is a holy God, and yet we fear not to enter the courts, despite the slenderness, the, the, the thinness, the tininess of everything we have, feel we have to bring God, the slenderness of the poor wealth we reckon as our own, truth in its beauty and love in its tenderness. These are the offerings we bring to God. They're, they're an offering of response to what he's done them. These, though, we bring them in trembling and fearfulness, aware of our inadequacy. He will accept, and why will he accept them? For the name that's dear. Who's the name that's dear? Jesus, he will accept because of Jesus, because he has died for us and has taken our sins and sorrows upon ourselves, And he will give us mornings of joy in exchange for our evenings of tearfulness. Trust instead of trembling and hope instead of fear. And we go back to the beginning and remind ourselves to worship the Lord 
in the beauty of holiness. Let's sing together.